This podcast looks at the life and work of the pioneering Irish conceptual artist Brian O'Doherty. In this recording, I, Quiva McNumida, from the National Gallery of Ireland's Education Department, am joined by Brenda Moore-McCann, Assistant Professor Adjunct at Trinity College Dublin, Editor of Dear Selected Letters from Brian O'Doherty from the 1970s to 2018, and author of the first monograph, Brian O'Doherty, Patrick Ireland, Between Categories. During the conversation, Brenda and I discuss work by Brian O'Doherty in the National Gallery of Ireland's collection, with a particular focus on a series of prints that are produced at Stony Road Press in Dublin between 2009 and 2016. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to discuss the work of the artist Brian O'Doherty, a true polymath, renowned artist, doctor, critic, filmmaker and novelist. To discuss the work in more detail, I'm joined today by Brenda Moore-McCann from Trinity College Dublin. And Brenda, thank you very much for joining me for this special podcast. We're going to discuss Brian O'Doherty's work and uh, focus a little bit on the work he has in the National Gallery of Ireland's collection. But I'd like to talk about your friendship with uh, Brian O'Doherty first. Um, I really enjoyed reading um, a selection of letters from Dear, selected letters from Brian O'Doherty from the 1970s to 2018. It gave me real insight into Brian the person. But um, I believe your friendship goes back many years. Yes, that's right. Um, Yeah, well, first of all, I think I should explain uh, how I was first introduced to him as a as a, an artist, I, I had been practicing as a doctor for over 20 years. And uh, at about, uh, then I uh, switched and I went uh, and did an art history degree in Trinity College as a mature student. And I can't remember exactly, it might have been around second year, one of, one of my lecturers, Catherine Marshall, uh, mentioned to me one day, did I, was I aware of this Irish doctor who was also a very prominent uh, critic and uh, artist in New York? So, of course, I, I had never heard of him um, and I didn't think too much about it. But anyway, he came up again and that was the thing. He kept popping up in various uh, guises. And uh, so I decided a year, maybe it might have been the following year, that uh, I needed a, a, a topic for my final year thesis. So I thought, well, this is interesting. I was... Um, I should find out more about him. Now, there wasn't very much available to me at the time. I'm talking about uh, the 1990s, mid-1990s. And um, so uh, I found uh, some catalogues. And uh, in one of them, um, interestingly enough, there were included in the catalog publication some letters that he had written to... uh, curators to museum directors etc etc answering questions about his work and I was very taken by these because there was a sort of informality about them there was a wit there was humor and yet there was tremendous fluency in the way he was able to talk about uh, quite complex ideas um, in such a, a straightforward way and it 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 is strangely enough, it was the letters that drew me in. So that's where it started. I was also very interested in the fact and always had been once I started art history. Um, obviously, I was interested in people who had studied medicine and were interested in art. And then I've discovered that he had been a doctor. 
And in fact, he had qualified in the same university as I had in UCD, uh, some 20 odd years prior to me. And as I got to know more about him and eventually I met him, uh, we found we had a lot in common uh, because of that uh, training and that background. Um, I eventually met him uh, quite by chance. There was a champion of his and the Irish art critic uh, Dorothy Walker had been championing his work in Ireland. And uh, one day she told me uh, that he was arriving as an artist in residence in Cork in the Sirius Arts Centre. So, of course, I went down there and I arranged to meet him. And I was quite terrified because I realised the breadth and range of this artist's uh, work was indeed very, very uh, large. Um, However, when I met the individual in the Crawford uh, Gallery, uh, he was so very informal, very uh, engaging, and actually invited me to partake in making uh, an installation with him. And I protested, saying, "No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not an artist. I can't paint anything." Uh, but anyway, he insisted, so I ended up contributing to that installation, which was a two-room uh, rope drawing called Borromini's Corridor uh, in the top two rooms of the Crawford Gallery. So that was a very kind gesture of his because it meant that my name, to my surprise, was added as a list as the list of assistant artists. So it was a nice gesture. And it went on from there. Uh, he, his wife is a very erudite art historian, very famous for her own uh, work on American uh, landscape painting, 19th century. And she uh, also was very helpful to me. So... What began there was uh, what is now being over 20 years of uh, a a relationship which grew into a friendship. I did my uh, BA thesis and then uh, when that was finished, I decided, well, I just don't know enough. There's more, much more to this uh, artist's work. I have to find out. And so I set about doing that and I ended up doing a PhD the first PhD on his work uh, in Trinity, awarded in 2002, uh, which I subsequently made into uh, the first monograph, which I called tellingly and deliberately Brian O'Doherty, Patrick Ireland, and uh, colon, between categories. Now, the reason, obviously, I did that well, became quite clear to me that, as you mentioned, this is a multifaceted um, uh, individual who has played many, many different roles, uh, not only uh, in the arts, uh, but also in medicine. He also had studied uh, experimental psychology in Cambridge University in the UK. And this is very important because it underpins a lot of his work, a psychological understanding of perception. So when I, uh, the book, I eventually uh, resolved uh, that um, a very disparate uh, range of works in all kinds of media, uh, but yet it didn't seem to be the traditional, what we would call stylistic unity that we expect from traditional art. So it, it sometimes appeared that you were dealing with uh, more than one artist. And indeed, uh, we were, because this is an artist who split his artistic identity into the most famous one being Patrick Ireland in um, 
1972, he became Patrick Ireland. And uh, so this complicated uh, one's uh, work and research into him because now you had two artists to deal with. You had Brian O'Doherty, who had been making art long before he arrived in New York, here in Ireland, and had been showing in all the usual um, places that are available to exhibit in, in the, from the 50s, um, qualified as a doctor in 52. And he was exhibiting art. He was writing art criticism, publishing poetry, all uh, while he was a medical student and a young doctor. So this was a, a, quite an extraordinary person. Uh, and then he complicates the whole thing by taking another artist's name. And he developed these uh, two parallel lives to which he added other personae later on, which I can go into if you wish. Uh, but the most famous one is Patrick Ireland. And um, I should say that before I leave his work and how I would explain it or how I can attempt to explain it is that uh, one must understand that it comes out of a, a dramatic change within the art world in, in the 20th century. So we had modernism from the late 19th century up until the mid 20th century. And the late modernism or high modernism as is often called, called under the, uh, particularly under the influence of the, the theoretical um, criticism and writings of Clement Greenberg was that art existed for art's sake. So artists were only interested. Of course, this wasn't true. Artists were interested in other things. Then you got uh, the clumsily named postmodernism, which arrived on the scene possibly in the early 1960s, precisely the time that Brian O'Doherty had emigrated to the United States, had gone to Harvard University, where he had done um, a master's of science degree in medicine, uh, having made a promise to his uh, parents that he would uh, not only complete his medical degree, but he also would do a postgraduate degree. But after he did his master's, he got back to what he had always wanted to do was to be an artist. So he has been an artist uh, in his mind uh, and in practice uh, for well over 50 years now, going on 60 years. He's, he'll be 93 in May. And thankfully, he's still with us. However, um, so his work really, the I suppose the phase of his work that we now know him best for would be uh, the work that emerged in the uh, early 60s in, in New York, in the context of New York. So he would be, if we want to put a label on him, and of course, artists hate labels, but uh, the one he will accept is that he is a post-minimalist conceptualist. So he was part of the minimalism uh, movement, which lasted for a number of years in the United States, which paved the way for what we now call conceptual art. So it, it appeared in various forms uh, all over the world, as we learned subsequently, simultaneously. It wasn't just in the UK and in the United States that conceptual art emerged. Um, it emerged a little later in Ireland, thanks to him 
he introduced conceptual art to Ireland at the Rusk exhibition in 1977, along with James Coleman. But getting back to the 60s, he first became very well known in the United States. He started working in the Boston Museum of Arts, where he started uh, before he arrived in New York in 1960. He started presenting a series of uh, art programs to the public, uh, which was called Invitation to Art. And I have seen one or two of these. They're immensely skillful because they're very conversational. They're not full of theory and so on, because, by the way, he never really went to art school and everything he knows about art. He learned through importing books before he left Ireland, reading, mixing with artists uh, like Jack B. Yeats, who became a a friend and mentor of his. And I know you have uh, the very fine drawing, um, which is the last portrait of Jack B. Yeats three weeks before he died which uh, Brian O'Doherty did in 1957 before he went over to Cambridge. And um, I know you've been reading uh, the letter that I included uh, at the very beginning of the letters book uh, published in 2018. I deliberately did that because I felt it's an extremely charming letter uh, uh, full of mistakes, uh, typos, and um, in in one sense, he didn't bother about correcting them. Um, and and of course, as editor, I didn't either because they had to be as fresh as they were to the person who was reading them. But it is it is a very charming letter in the way that Jack B. Yates was quite ill and he was in the Portobello nursing home, which is on the canal. And uh, Brian Jardy visited him there on Valentine's Day, actually, uh, 1957, just before he went over to Cambridge in the UK. And Jack B. Yeats had given up painting. He, I think, must have been quite depressed and his wife had died. And so he was he had given up painting. And the letter that comes from Cambridge subsequently um, is uh, it, this younger doctor, trying to encourage the older man whom he admired very much, um, not so much exactly for his painting, but uh, it wasn't that useful to the, the artist Brian O'Darty as it turned out, but, but more for his attitude, his independent spirit. That's what he really liked. And as we will see, he has this knack of befriending older uh, artists, He went on to become a good friend of uh, Marcel Duchamp. And I know you have the portrait of Marcel Duchamp there. Uh, He he became friendly with him. Again, he admired Duchamp's independent attitude, his defiance of art world rules and uh, uh, regulations uh, uh, outside of which you could not uh, tread. And as as it went on, Brian O'Doherty, his whole practice is about breaking rules. It's about breaking conventions, which is what a lot of postmodernist artists were doing, just to hop back to that. Because at the point in, of this high modernism in the early um, 60s, which would have been broken initially by pop art and fluxus art and happenings and things like that, artists wanted to get out of this 
stranglehold of the museum and gallery system, which only had its favorites and was not allowing certain artists' work to be shown in galleries or museums. And so they moved away from, or they tried to move away from the museum and get out into the community and link art again, once again, with the society, with the people, because a lot of people have become alienated from art this very high condescending kind of art that was saying, well, if you don't understand abstract expressionism, there's something wrong with you. Uh, That was the implication. And so a lot of these artists of which Brian was one, um, you know, wanted to move away from that. They wanted to get away also from this concept of the artist, the persona of the artist as being a genius figure uh, who was uh, hidebound to the original brushstroke uh, originality and only being concerned about the future, not the present. They were concerned about the present. And of course, in the background to all of this was uh, the the um, furore uh, and which gathered pace as the 60s went on to, and I remember this because I'm old enough to remember this, having visited America at the height of all of of these, um, what were called anti-establishment views and um, resistance to the uh, Vietnam War and the growth of uh, feminism, the growth of rights of all kinds, black people's rights, which of course were s- still being dealt with, uh, uh, gay rights. All of, this was the background. So there was uh, it was a, a very exciting time for Brian O'Doherty to arrive from the relatively staid, conservative, ultra-conservative environment of Ireland, which at that time was only interested in French art. He was more interested in, in uh, Russian art. And as you can see, this that it continues to be a, a strand within his work, particularly in the rope drawings. Um, so I identified... It wasn't the style that uh, was common to the works because the the, the different uh, media in which he worked demanded different ways of working, uh, as with other artists as well. Ideas were more important than making objects. That was the big thing that conceptual arts uh, was concerned with. And of course, if you're interested in ideas, that opens up a whole new field. Uh, in high modernism politics, you were not allowed to talk about politics or address political issues. It was only about art, art, uh, art for art's sake, in other words. So this opened up ideas about art. It opened up ideas about society, uh, about history, about politics. And I identified in my uh, book and my thesis, actually, my PhD, that there are there there may seem to be a disparate number of works without any stylistic unity. However, there is a thematic unity that underpins all these works. And I found that these were weighty subjects, perception, identity or the self and language. Now, of course, language for conceptual art in the most uh, uh, common model became the medium. But usually artists uh, used language, they used the English language, assuming that the English language is a universal language. Now, uh, contrary uh, to, to that attitude, 
Brian uh, looked in the 60s for a language that would be minimal and yet would connect with the more communal uh, nature of language. And he found it having looked at many, many different languages, uh, pre-Columbian, you know, Farsi uh, runes, Scandinavian runes. He eventually, as he says himself, found it in his own backyard. He had learned about the Irish Celtic language of Oam uh, in in when he was at school in Lachlanstown, uh, and uh, we didn't, I didn't learn it, but they learned it in his day. So he was familiar with it and it was perfect for him because coming out of minimalism, here was a script or a language that was reduced merely to a set of lines. And so it was four sets of five lines and they could be disposed uh, vertically or slanting or drop off a, a common invisible horizontal. And it it, for him, in a delightful way, it also related to serialism, which was a, a, a form of music uh, founded by Schoenberg in the early part of 20th century, which a lot of a friend of his, Morton Feldman, who was a, a composer, um, was very interested in serialism, and he learned a lot about serialism. He wasn't the only artist interested in serialism at that time. So a lot of artists at that time were looking to basic mathematical, uh, fairly simple concepts like progressions, um, like uh, magic square. He's particularly interested in the magic square, uh, which is, I learned, uh, you have a set of numbers on a grid, and they add up, or they should add up, uh, horizontally, vertically, and diagonally. They always end up with the same number, magically. And he has used that uh, frequently in his work. But, of course, one of the key things about minimalism was the use of the grid. And he, he uses the grid and continues to use the grid. Um, but the grid, for him, uh, was not really a symbol of order, it was more the grid for him came out of his interest in chess because he had played chess as the family. They played chess. He says he's only a middling player, um, but uh, he was interested in chess. And part of his work in the early days is he made chess pieces, minimal chess pieces, one of which Duchamp um, uh, asked him because he was chairman of the Chess Society of America. So there's a Brian O'Darley chess piece in the Chess Society of America. So um, I think maybe to, to kind of wrap up uh, Brian's work, uh, I could quote, I'll give you a couple of quotes. And one is from, if you like, the, the, the American critic Lucy Lepard, who wrote what is regarded as the Bible of uh, conceptual art, one of the first books to come out about conceptual art. And it's called Six Years the, the dematerialization of the art object from 1966 to 1972, which is published around 1972. And in that, she, even at that early stage, is lamenting that many of the major conceptualists were, contrary to what they started off in their rather resisting the art system, 
They were now selling their conceptual works for large sums of money to museums. Brian, of course, wasn't, and he doesn't fit in in there. But the other thing that he does fit in was her other comment was that conceptualists interactions, uh, uh, this is about um, conceptualists, interactions between maths and art, philosophy and art, literature and art, politics and art, are still at a very primitive level. Now, I, in my book, have argued they were at a primitive level for many conceptors, but they really, by the end of the 60s, it's all there and 70s, early 70s, all of those interactions exist in Brian O'Doherty's um, uh, work. Uh, so in that sense, um, it, that's one thing that makes it quite um, remarkable, the spread of it, the broadness of it. And the, the other one I will quote is Brian himself. And of course, he has wonderful ways of, of uh, paraphrasing things, as I said earlier, in the 1960s, he was a critic for the New York Times. And in one of, one of the pieces, um, he, he put all these, his reviews together in a book called Object and Idea, which was published in 1967. And one of those essays caught my eye, and it's called Parameters for the Authentic Artist. And in it, I'll just give you a small quote. He says, the genuine creator... In other words, he's talking about how many artists were now selling their soul for money. You know, um, it was all a, art was becoming a career rather than a vocation or a profession. He says the genuine artist or creator is involved in breaking the rules. We need the dissenter. Up to now, the role of the modern artist has been that of the great individual. So he's talking about the cult of the artist which he tried to undermine in his own practice by inventing all these personae and staying in the background. Uh, at one stage, he told me he, he had decided he would no longer go to openings of his work uh, in his gallery, the Betty Parsons Gallery in New York. And she was outraged because, of course, she was trying to promote his work. And if the artist didn't turn up, it was kind of other people wouldn't go because they all wanted to meet the artist. So there was the cult of the artist, which, again, in his own way, Andy Warhol, um, he hyped it. He made it into an even bigger cult, you know. So uh, all these uh, things were going on at the time. Would you like me to talk a little bit about uh, the name change? Or would you like me to elaborate more on, on uh, his work? Um, well, I, I just, what you were saying there was really fascinating. And I think the um, quote that you have there, that uh, the pursuit of excellence in art is stringent and demanding. Yes. And its rewards are usually not monetary. I, I, that's one of my favourite yeah. quotes by him. Yeah. I think it's very yeah. important, yeah. I suppose, for artists to consider that it's, it is a vocation that you you are going into, you know, to to uh, um, to achieve, I suppose, something that's really different, and and to yeah. to find something within yourself to produce this to produce a body of work that's yeah. different, um, and to take but, risks of uh, presenting it or representing it mm-hmm. to an audience without knowing how they're going to receive it. Um, and that, that's, those are the risks artists take. 
Um, and so many artists, unfortunately, have actually decided to take the, the easier route of, of if they find something is a seller, to just stick with that and keep selling it. Now, he has re resolutely stuck to his last, as it were, and he is to be admired and is indeed e admired by internationally for that, but also by younger artists, younger generations of artists in Ireland whom I've interviewed and they have told me about uh, how he influenced them. His attitude influenced them to take more risks and be braver about what you want to say, particularly in the area of the Troubles in Northern Ireland and um, I've interviewed a, a number of artists about that, of course. He showed the way uh, by his performance in 1972. But um, uh, I think, um, I suppose that one of the things that attracted me, getting back to that, was these are very uh, weighty subjects. I was, I was very frightened when I realized, my goodness, this is what's going on. How on earth am I going to get my head around such weighty themes and be able to do justice to this artist's work? Um, but what attracted me, um, apart from his encouragement, I must say, don't forget he's a teacher as well. And there is the teacher is in him because his father was a teacher. And um, he, there were times when I thought, I, I just can't do this. Uh, and I once said to him, but look, you could do this better than me. I, I haven't got the language. I, you know. And he said, no, he said, the artist can't do that. And he said, keep going, keep going. But he never really handed me things on a plate. Anything I learned about him, I had to find out myself, which um, allowed me, I suppose, to be protected in that people might think because a living artist, they just are, they're ghosting this for you, you know. And um, I was very determined not to let that happen. But it, it, it never arose. He never tried. Uh, but what attracted to me, as I was about to say, is the themes are weighty, but the way he, he presents them with such uh, incredible, how straightforward, I mean, really, if you think about it, you, he deals with dots, the most minimal mark you could possibly get uh, in art. And then if you join dots together, you get a line and lines are all over his work. And, and then he takes that line. And as he, he quotes, uh, was it uh, Clay or was it Kandinsky? And I think it's Clay taking a line for a walk. So he took a line for a walk from the two-dimensional space of a, a page uh, or, uh, or on canvas, but he didn't do canvas work until uh, it was 30 years before he went back to canvas. But he took the line out into three-dimensional space to make installations. And of course, he, he once said to me that one of the things, if he hadn't been a doctor, well, the first thing he wanted to be always was an artist, but he had to be a doctor. He had to have a sensible job. I mean, parents usually want their children to have sensible jobs and being an artist is not regarded as being too sensible um, or a, an actor or something like that. But he uh, so he did medicine and he doesn't regret it, but because um, it does inform a lot of his work and the way he thinks. Uh, the other thing he once said to me that he would love to have been would be an architect. So he's very, very interested in space. 
And um, of course, a lot of theorists were getting very interested in space in the 60s and 70s. And he and his wife um, have a beautiful house uh, with supposedly with the Etruscan walls in Umbria in Italy since the 70s. So his work, as I would see it, much like Sol Lewitz, who also lived in Italy and uh, was very influenced by uh, Italian color, Italian frescoes and so on. And so uh, frescoes, of course, are wall paintings in another word. And Brian O'Doherty began to paint walls in this house in, 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 in Umbria, sorry, Umbria. And it's called Casa di Pinta, uh, which means painted house. Uh, but it essentially is a museum uh, to, it's the only place that you can go uh, permanently and see a range of Brian O'Doherty or Patrick Ireland works, because it mostly was done under Patrick Ireland. Um, and uh, so it can now be visited by the public. And it's an extraordinary place. It completely painted walls inside. And uh, so it's like, a living, breathing uh, museum, the way, uh, you know, art should be, as it was in Roman times and so on. Art, you lived with the art, your Roman villas, you were surrounded by the art. Um, and this, his museum is like that. So it fits in very well with his object of, he um, obviously wrote this very famous book, which he became very famous initially inside the white cube. And that's his term. He coined the white cube term, um, which is used ubiquitously now. Um, and he did that in the, they were published in 1976 and are still as influential today. They've been translated into about 15 or 20 languages, sometimes without his permission. But um, they are very intimately linked that those uh, essays very intimately linked with his thinking uh, about his installations, which are made simply with uh, rope and Venetian cord rope. And he paints the walls and he juxtaposes the ropes with configurations on the walls, which you, you, the spectator, have to find where the ropes um, become aligned with a geometric configuration on the wall. And um, they're all about order and disorder, um, about things falling into place and then falling out of place, which he, he relates very much. Well, that's how life is. Life is like that. Uh, you know, we all feel grateful for the times when everything seems to be falling into place. But then we all know quickly it may not stay that way. And so underlying all of his work is this deep kind of philosophical uh, kind of ideas um, uh, about, about life itself, what life, what life means, and which is what all our great art is about. And, and what is our role? What's our role in, in the life? So it's not just our role in the installation or in the labyrinth, which he introduced into contemporary art in the uh, 60s, he, very early with the labyrinth. Robert Morris's labyrinth was, um, you know, about uh, seven or eight years later, even though he's often credited as being the first one. Uh, but Brian O'Doherty's labyrinth is based on the St. Bridget's Cross. Uh, so he, he does look back to his own culture uh, um, in, uh, from time to time to 
uh, find motifs that might work for um, contemporary practice. And of course, the big one that he looked back on was the, the language that I touched on, the Ohm uh, alphabet, which is found originally on standing stones in, in the south and southwest of Ireland and in Wales as well, uh, where they were thought to be kind of boundary markers. So um, he has adapted that for millions of, well, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of drawings. If you were to look for one, um, how would you describe drawing? Drawing is a big feature of his work. His, his friend George Siegel, the American um, sculptor, used to make these plaster casts of people. He died a few years ago. He once uh, was quoted as saying that uh, Patrick Arland, Brian O'Doherty's drawing of is uh, among the uh, most eminent uh, in American art. Now, of course, he was using Brian because Brian is now an American citizen, but he still has his Irish passport and he's dual citizenship, in other words. So, um, so drawing um, is very much linked to his understanding of psychology because, you know, uh, he says um, about drawing, you draw to see what you think. And very often that's why artists bring around little notebooks where they draw something and then work it up then maybe later. But he has constant, is always drawing and uh, has his own notebooks and um, uh, has various sayings in them that have guided his practice. And... Um, he has looked to other, he's looked to philosophers like William James, the philosopher George Barclay. He's done work on George Barclay, um, who, of course, was the Bishop of Cloyne um, uh, down in Cork. And he's very interested in his philosophy and his, of what reality is. And he, you know, so he, he uses multiple sources. But I would, I should say, this sounds all very heavy, but I would say uh, if you if you give it time, if you get into his work, there is a wit in it. There's humor in it. it. It's it. You can just stop if you wish at the abstract level and see an abstract uh, drawing or an abstract painting and enjoy the colors and the juxtapositions of them and the movement, uh, the, the implied movement that's in a lot of his works, particularly in that later set of, of uh, drawings that um, the prints that he, he did with Stony Road Press, uh, which were shown in Berlin. And uh, you, I notice myself that... Um, there's always implied movement in a lot of his work. Obviously, in the rope drawings, you are the moving part. You are the person who controls the rope drawings. And it's difficult to explain them because you have to be in them to know what I'm really talking about. Um, but if you look, some of the works you have there in the gallery, you have rotating circle and echo. So made of dots, which is a beautiful uh, piece. You have uh, the implied movement of the kind of zigzaggy ohm lines that are, I, I call them, they're dancing. They're dancing across. Uh, there's an implied grid there because if you look in, you don't see the grid, but if you look, you will see each of those 
lines is in a little bunch of fives. So there are fives going all the way across and all the way down. So that five, those five lines in Om add up, uh, are, is a vowel, the vowel uh, I. And of course, I mentioned that he's very interested in the self, and we've already spoken about how uh, his own work is is divided, uh, uh, this divided selves of artists. There's a whole body of work by Patrick Ireland, and there's a whole body of work by Brian O'Doherty before he was Patrick Ireland, and now there's a body of work by Brian O'Doherty after Patrick Ireland was uh, buried in the grounds of the Irish Museum of Modern Art once there was peace in Northern Ireland in, in 2008. But he was, for 36 years, he was Patrick Ireland. And so much so, people, when I started my research, I would speak to people and I'd say, oh, um, I'd like to talk to you about Patrick Ireland. And uh, they would say, sometimes I would get this response, who? Um, oh, I said, oh, do you know Brian O'Doherty? Oh, yes, I know Brian O'Doherty. Of course I know. I'm talking about people in America now. Of course I know Brian O'Doherty. Then I would say to somebody, oh, can I speak here in Ireland, perhaps? Can I speak to you about Brian O'Doherty? Who? Oh, well, can I speak to you? Have you ever heard of Patrick Ireland? Oh, yeah, how Patrick Ireland? I heard about him. He's the fellow that buried himself. And, you know, this is in more recent times. And it's very interesting that he managed to keep these two persona quite separate in a way, because... He, his artwork from 1972 until 2008 was Patrick Ireland. It was all signed by Patrick Ireland, uh, whereas his writings continued under Brian O'Doherty. So his criticism, his, uh, his more recent novels uh, were all done under the name Brian O'Doherty. So I said to him when I, when I met him in 1995, I said, well, what do I call you? So at that time, in public, I called him Patrick, but in private, I called him Brian. Out of respect for this persona, and I was dealing with the artist persona. So, um, and Barbara, his wife, Barbara Novak, uh, she very often was called Mrs. Ireland. Uh, She'd be introduced as Mrs. Ireland. And uh, just to show you how successful he was in keeping these two persona quite separate was that uh, there's um, who's who in America. You know, it's like a, a directory. It's like Tom's directory over here where you have entries about uh, various people who are considered worth putting into a, a directory. And so there's a, a directory, and I have it in the letters book there. I think I, I put it in to show how there's an entry for Brian O'Doherty, and then there's a separate entry, entry for Patrick Ireland. And you look down, you read the whole thing, and unless you're quick enough to pick up, there are a few little overlaps. They, they sound like two different people, yeah? So he was able to keep these... Persone and the others he added in and used only occasionally. He kept them very quiet and didn't reveal their existence at all until his retrospective here in the Hugh Lane Gallery in uh, 2006. And that was the first time these other persone were brought, uh, uh, in, were revealed. And one of them was a female, Mary Josephson. 
And he got her, now this is where the humor comes in. He got Mary Josephson. Her name, by the way, is derived from the horror he had as a young boy to find, which was common in those days, his name was Brian Mary. There was a Marian cult in Ireland at the time. And funnily enough, my name is Brenda Mary. And anyway, he, he for his confirmation, Irish people will know this. Sometimes you have to explain it to Americans as a Catholic. For his um, confirmation, he decided he was going to reassert his masculinity. So he took the name Joseph. So now he was Brian uh, Mary Joseph. So that's actually the Holy Family, isn't it? And so when he wanted um, another uh, feminist, he wanted a feminist. He wanted to write as a feminist because he was very intrigued and interested in this uh, development. So he needed a female writer and there wasn't one around. So he invented Mary Joseph's son. He's, he's put on the son at the end. So the son, of course, is Mary Joseph and the son. So now he had the holy family. So it was his kind of secular uh, thing. You know, a lot of people were um, in of his generation, particularly felt terribly repressed by the Catholic Church. I'm a generation younger. I grew up with it all right. Um, and but many of us rejected it. But they reject this is a rejection in a sense, just like Joyce. Joyce rejected his oppressive, uh, as he felt, Catholic, uh, Catholic Church. Um, and it, strangely enough, uh, they both uh, were voluntary exiles. Brian O'Doherty uh, did wanted to get out of Ireland. Um, and lucky for him, he arrived in America at this extremely exciting time, which suited uh, his sensibility. So he's made all his contributions uh, on that. But the um, thing I would say about the name change, which was the first performance art uh, chronologically in Ireland, um, it brought him a lot of opprobrium from people. People here thought that he was an undercover IRA man. And this was added to by the fact that he wore a stocking over his face during the performance. Uh, but he was dressed all in white with a white stocking at the original performance. And he was assisted by two artists, Brian King and Bobby Bala. Um, and you probably know what, what happened. He was carried out on a stretcher and he his body was painted, you know, I think it was orange from the head down and green from the bottom up. But at a certain point, as the two artists were simultaneously painting, you actually had the Irish flag uh, uh, displayed on his body. But they crossed over. And so his body ended up a, a dirty brown, like a kind of a, a, an atrocity victim. Uh, so really what he was dealing with, it's too long to go into now, but um, he was really dealing with the symbolism of flags, which we all know about. We've seen them on, uh, painted on pavements and everything, the, the the Union Jack on pavements and Unionist areas and, you know, the green, white and orange um, in other areas of, of Belfast and beyond. So he was dealing with that, but he was also dealing with the symbolism of flags and things, but also how identities are formed by those uh, cultures that, uh, you know, are aligned to the, the green or aligned to the um, orange. Of course, it was a risky thing to do. He knew that. Uh, but he also says, 
that he he is one of these people that believes art cannot change politics. It can't change it, but it can respond to it. Um, but it wouldn't be under the illusion he could change anything. However, the m- main motivation of it was, as an exile, there were many, many people in the United States whom he was meeting who had no idea what was going on in this little island far away, and particularly in a small part of it. And it wasn't until the atrocities that they began to ask questions. And so part of his protest, it was an exile's protest. Uh, He was criticized for the fact that he didn't live in Ireland. And who was he? What right had he to take the name of the whole country? Um, But he wrapped up in that was the whole issue about names. Like he talks about how the name Paddy is applied to people in the UK, whether they're from the North or from the South. Everyone's Paddy. The English call you Paddy, which is not a highly respectful kind of um, terminology. So he wanted Patrick and he was going to dignify Patrick with the name. And then Ireland is actually an English surname, ironically. And of course, St. Patrick himself was not Irish. So, you know, there are all those uh, complexities involved in it. But um, I once presented the name change performance at a conference, an EU conference here in Dublin, in UCD. And uh, many of the people who were presenting papers, it was to do with, um, it was the forms of protest in art. And I presented this as a, a, a unique example that I could find of a peaceful protest. There was no incitement to violence or anything in this. The stocking, by the way, over the face was, uh, as it is for robbers and people like that, to neutralize your identity. Your facial identity is gone. And if he was going to change his name from Brian O'Doherty to Patrick Ireland, he, he, his, his physiognomy, as it were, had to be neutralized until he had actually acquired the, the new name, uh, which he signed a document in front of a solicitor. Actually, this actually happened. And um, in fact, that was the same stocking he wore over his face when he was burying Patrick Ireland and this, this sim- a similar coat, the same, same coat that he wore originally, he wore uh, Patrick Ireland was buried. Um, the, the thing that happened in 2008, he felt with the peace process in Northern Ireland, having watched it for years with horror, as many of us, uh, uh, as well. His idea was that the, uh, the idea of burying Patrick Ireland, Patrick Ireland was born out of, out of um, conflict and hate uh, between two communities and death and uh, atrocity. But uh, Patrick Ireland, when he was buried, peace had arrived in spite of these terrible times and 3,000 people being killed and of course, the, 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 the name change was deliberately a, a direct response to Bloody Sunday um, on the 30th of January, 72, uh, which was subsequently found uh, to be, uh, you know, not, um, none of the, the people had arms or anything. They were, they were shot in cold blood. Um, so um, he buried uh, Patrick Ireland because he felt... This is what we're doing here is burying hate. 
That's all he said. We are burying hate today. That's all he said. Um, and in he felt, if it's possible, he said privately afterwards and has said it publicly, if it's possible to resolve such a thorny, difficult conflict in, in a small uh, place like Northern Ireland, it should be possible to resolve it anywhere in the world. So therefore, there was an international dimension to the burial. There were uh, readings in, um, in, in German and French and um, Irish indeed. So, um, so um, would you like me to talk about silence? Yeah, that's something that I'm interested in because I've I've read you mentioned silence in his work, and I, I just kind of picked up on that. So yeah. yeah, I'd just like to know what you what you mean by that. Well, I I actually found uh, <laughs> like like there's layering in in Brian's work. Uh, it's it's like you peel an onion, and it's you, you there's there's another another layer to go, and another layer. And one of the things that I found was. Uh, silence seemed to pop up quite a bit um, and I actually did a lecture on it one time um, but and I have a chapter in my book uh, the Between Categories book chapter seven I actually uh, entitled it Imaging Silence Performing Language so what I mean by that is all of these images that he has given us like uh, these drawings made out of own now, Owen doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it's, we don't even know if people ever spoke it. We, d- we, we just think it was a script, but not sure. So I, I don't know if it was a language in that sense or whether it was just a script. And, and Owen, by the way, we're going back uh, more recent um, uh, scholarship in the Royal Irish Academy uh, dates it to the third, fourth century up to the seventh century when you got vellum and so on, like Book of Kells and so on, and from there on in. Um, but what I meant by silence, I, I began to realize, but Oum is silent. It's actually silent. Um, yet it, if he has reduced his uh, verbal language within the context of conceptual art to Oum, but also to very specific words, one here and now, and I and you, which is obviously a direct address to the viewer. One here now is a kind of an existential thing. You know, it's it's the self in time and place. Um, all you've got is now. The future may be influenced by the now, but you can't do anything about the past. So all you have is now. And he is very much uh, worked on these concepts throughout a vast series of works. Sometimes the words are together, rarely together. Usually they're split up into, um, uh, you could have a, a drawing and it's made up of the word one in Ohm. It's a whole grid of ones. But of course, um, and when I got my PhD, he did a very specific, beautiful drawing specifically for me. Um, and it was the word O-N-E in English, not an O-M, O-N-E in a kind of blocked out kind of almost like a Bauhaus way, you know. But of course, that was a pun because it was it, it was a pun on one. I won my PhD. And he also the, he inscribed it O-N-E, one, and then in brackets for doctor, doctor. 
He loves the fact that I am two doctors in one. I'm a medical doctor, but I'm a PhD doctor. So that's what he, so it's two and one and it's one and one. He loves all that wordplay. And that's uh, what can be very um, uh, fascinating. Back to silence. So Owen itself is silent, right? It's not a, it's not a language we completely understand. We know what the letters There are only 20 letters uh, of the Roman alphabet that have been transferred into these four sets of five lines. Um, So it's visual in terms of a mark, and it's also verbal in its language. It's visual and verbal, pared down to the minimum. And I think that that appealed very much to him because he wanted to combine language, conceptual art, and uh, serialism together. And as I mentioned, it is a serial type of language. But the silence is something that comes in. He he once made the remark um, about, you know, whispering gets more attention. You know, when you think about it, it's true. If you whisper, people strain more to hear what what you're saying than if you shout and roar and make a, a, a noise. Silence actually became also one of the themes of a very important piece of work that he he, uh, produced in 1967. Um, 1967 seems to have been a year of tremendous fertility. You know, so much came on stream. He found Oum, started using it. He started making... um, uh, performances based on the Ohm language, which are called structural plays. He then also put together an extraordinary box. It's been shown all around the world. And um, it's quite rare now, but I, I have a, I'm lucky to have a copy myself. In 1967, he produced a, an exhibition in a small eight by eight box white box called Aspen. Now, Aspen is in Colorado, usually associated with skiing, but actually used to have a very important um, design festival there. It's a very cultural place as well. And there was a lady there called Phyllis Johnson. And she, funny enough, she came from the fashion world, but she was very instrumental in, in devising this box and, and getting well-known artists to curate it as an exhibition. So for example, the box that Brian did, he did a double edition, five plus six. Um, it's called the conceptual edition, the minimal and conceptual edition. Andy Warhol did the one before him. So that's the pop edition. So they were dedicated to various art movements. And Brian's uh, having, by most people, not just me, his is the most complex and most um extraordinary because in that small little white box you open it up and you find inside films there are four films there are records little floppy disky things now I got one of my sons to convert those into into cds and you you have pieces of sculpture a sculptural model by tony tony um smith you've got a printed data he calls it and and three little booklets now getting back to silence one of the booklets 
was he commissioned, he commissioned all the work in it. And he commissioned Susan Sontag, the very famous uh, uh, writer. He commissioned her for Aspen. And he asked her, he told her the, the kind of ideas he had about this box and what he wanted to go into it. And so she came up with an essay, which is called The Aesthetics of Silence. And I will just uh, read you a little quote from it, which is very is pertinent to Brian's own work. She says, and this is in Aspen, most valuable art in our time has been experienced as a move into silence. And in brackets, she has, or intelligibility, or invisibility, or inaudibility. And uh, obviously, I haven't put the whole sentence in, but the isolation of the work from its audience never lasts. So I think what she's saying in another way, there are times when we're blind to what artists are, are trying to show us. We can't see it because you can't see what you don't know. You don't see it and you can't hear what you don't know. So when we listen to, uh, I know when Beethoven produced his Ninth Symphony, audiences were outraged, absolutely outraged. When, uh, what's his name, who did the custom house, um, the architect who did the yeah. custom Gandon, when James Gandon did his custom house, there was outrage. So as, as that other critic, uh, uh, Robert, um, what was the second name? Anyway, it's called the shock of the new. So when things are presented to us, we don't actually see it because it doesn't fit into any particular template that we are aware of. And as you know, I teach a, a, a class in um, Trinity to medical students called Perception in Medicine and Art. And one of the things I say to them, you, you can't see what you don't know. You only know, you know what you see. So um, obviously, the more you know, the more you'll see. So it, to educate yourself as best you can by reading books, going to plays, looking at art, you will see more. And uh, I can tell you, since I have been studying this artist or researching this artist's work, well, nearly 20 years now, I am seeing so much more than I would have seen if I hadn't studied uh, and researched. But it is demanding, like anything that's worthwhile, it is demanding. Uh, but if you're curious, it is extremely rewarding. And um, like a lot of good art, you know, the books that you, you struggled with to read when you were younger, if you stuck with them, the Jane Austens and so on, so on uh, they, were, they ultimately were rewarding. And I would say Brian's work is like that. It's not for everybody, but he doesn't want it for everybody. You know, he, he wants it for people who are curious, people who are interested and prepared to, to follow a little guiding hand. Um, to me, it's a bit like um, Dante uh, in the, in the, you know, the Divine Comedy. He's been guided through uh, by Virgil, you know. Everyone needs us a guide. And I kind of look, I ask myself many times, what is an art historian supposed to do? What are we supposed to be actually doing? And for me, it is to 
uh, acquaint ourselves as best we can with an artist's work. It's impossible to be truly inside their head. You just can't be. But you can get as approximately approximate to it as best you can if you work hard at it. And then our, the job is to communicate all of that out to a general audience um, in, in as clear and concise a language as you can. And as we all know as lecturers, you, you don't actually win every student over. But, you know, if you bring most of them with you or if you stimulate them to want to go a little bit further or to ask a question and say, oh, I want to come back to that. Can I ask you about that? Um, that's, that's as much as we can do, you know. Um, and uh, so is there anything else you want to ask me? Is yeah, that silence? Do you want to ask me more about silence? Well, I'd like to move on actually to um, yeah. the rotating vowels, which we have in, we have uh, plexinomies off in yeah. the Irish collection. And these were done by um, Stony Road Press. Yes. And I, I just following on from what you were talking about there with this real interest in OM, which is like mm. we're saying, it's an alphabet that's not really used anymore. Um, yeah. I mean, OM really does inform these, this body of work. Oh, absolutely. It does, because as I mentioned, once he chose, he was looking for a language, as a lot of conceptualists, uh, as I said, were using language as a medium. He decided that he wanted, he didn't want English because it's full of uh, problems, uh, impurities, miscommunications, etc., etc., which he deals with to a certain degree in some of his uh, his structural plays, which are based on OM or short English sentences. Uh, but they're, they're, that's another day's work. Um, yes, you're quite right. The concentric uh, or rotating vowels. Again, notice there's an implied movement in those and uh, they're rotating. And if you look at them, there is a sense in which they seem to uh, move under the eye, to my eye anyway. And there is a sense when you look at some of his um, his own works, uh, the ones, the line works, but uh, with the own language, uh, depending on the colors he used, they kind of move in and out of your perception. They kind of shift in a way. Um, so, and then he has a, a work, I think you have an example of it there, the flying open cube. So, and that's kind of like an exploding gallery. This is where he he burst open the gallery. It's a box, and the cube, of course, is the white box, is the gallery. And he did this big series in the 80s called Flying Open Cube and all sorts of different colors. And they're flying, they're open. They're free to be uh, uh, something different from uh, being rigidly stuck inside a box. Uh, but, yeah, the, the uh, rotating vowels... I mentioned earlier that he, being a, a minimalist at heart, he reduced his language to uh, certain words, one here now, but also to the vowels. Now, he did use consonants uh, earlier in, in his alphabet, but he, he actually resolved to use, uh, he ended up with the vowels. He preferred the vowels uh, because in his mind, the vowels are the basic, the most basic unit of a language. And of course, Irish vowels are differently constructed from English vowels. In English, we say A, E, I, O, and U. That's how we learned it. But in, um, in Irish, 
we have what we call the broad vowels, A, O, U, and then the slender vowels, E and I. So they are uh, structurally linked together in the Irish language. Um, so he was interested in the vowels. And uh, another source uh, for him would be uh, Rambo. You remember the symbolist uh, poet? I think he died at the age of 27, but he was... Um, he did a poem and it was called Voyelle, which means vowels in French. And he, uh, there's a kind of synesthesia attached to vowels where some people who have synesthesia can actually see colors when they see a vowel. I don't have synesthesia, I don't see colors. But uh, some people hear sounds and they hear, they see color. And don't forget, I said that this guy had studied. Uh, experimental psychology so he would know a lot about that and as doctors were interested in these kind of sensual phenomena that two senses are stimulated uh, by uh, looking at something so you see and you hear um, and this I think is something that informs his work he's very interested in the senses his work is very cerebral, but he's also very interested in the senses, which you can tell by looking at the way he uses color in his work. Um, you're drawn in sensually to the color and the way he uses color. And this happens in the rope drawings, but also in, in these, um, the installations, but also in these drawings. So uh, the vowels is something he's very interested in. in. In this case, he uses the vowels, he has made them into arcs. So uh, I need to tell you that uh, the vowels are, as I mentioned, the broad vowels in Irish go together and then slender vowels. So it's A-O-U, the broad vowels, and E and I. And so if you look at the center of those drawings that you have there, it, you see a single disc, okay, one single disc at the very center, like a, the bullseye, if you like. That is equivalent to the single line in Oum, which is equivalent to the letter A. So that's an A, okay? Now, if you look at the ring, this, the next ring to that, you will see two arcs, which is equivalent to two lines. So that is an O, A-O. So now we have A and O. And you'll see at the bottom, he is giving you those in, in Roman numerals. So he's giving you the A and then you have AO. And then you go to the third ring. I don't know which one you're looking at. Is this the five vowels or just? Yeah, four? I'm following. Five, five vowels. So, okay, the third ring, you have three, three arcs, okay, which will be equivalent to three lines in OM, which is, which means you. So now we have A, O, and U. You go to the fourth one, you have four arcs, four sections of an arc, okay? So that's four lines, and that's an E. And the outer one has five, five lines, which are arcs in this case, and that is an I. So you have A, O, U, E, and I. So you have the five vowels there. And in the rest of the series, he builds them up incrementally. So you start with the single A, and then he has another one, it's A-O, and then another one's A-O-U. And he builds them up till you get the full set of the vowels there in that one you're looking at. Mm. So, um, so here you have what I have called uh, a very an unusual uh, 
version of image and text. Like, like it's, it's, it, they're just vowels, but you've got, you've got uh, visual and you've got the verbal together. And that actually, in one sense, is bringing the cognitive and the sensual together. Because languages, you know, there was these divisions like, uh, you know, cognition relates to language and mathematics and things. And the senses are the lower orders. They are, you know, just emotion and this sort of thing. However, uh, I think that's being challenged here. Uh, I would argue that he's bringing you as a doctor. We all know you can't separate the the mind from the body. So the body and the mind are together. Yeah. Um, it was just it's really interesting to have it explained to me. It's like a veil being lifted up. You know? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so yeah. thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. Um, I just want to finish up the podcast with uh, just a look at the portrait of Marcel Duchamp. Yeah. Uh, that he produced using uh, an actual cardiographic uh, yeah. machine that's back yeah. in the 1960 I think it was 1966 yeah, but well. we, we do have a copy of that in yeah. the gallery now and I think it's it's very interesting because I actually heard Brian talking about it himself when he spoke with the gallery a number of years ago yeah and what I found interesting is that it really challenged my perception of a, of a portrait exactly you know and you know you're I think it's interesting as well that you are from a medical background so is Brian and that they're using this medical machine to produce mm-hmm portrait so what's your view on that yes uh yeah i i have called it actually the first conceptual portrait Mm. the first conceptual art portrait um robert morris did do an electro uh, and electroencephalogram of on his own brain (laughs) an eeg we call that he did it a, a few years um a few short years before brian did this so This is, you could talk for a whole day about this particular work because there are many sources that go into his thinking about it. Um, The first one I think is well worth knowing is don't forget, this was uh, exactly the time that the first heart transplant had taken place in South Africa with Christian Barnard. And of course, this was an extraordinary thing Um, to think that somebody would have someone else's heart beating inside them. And for him, it it brought up, for Brian, I'm talking about, it brought up all sorts of issues about identity. Like, it's not my heart beating, it's someone else's, you know. It also, he was also very interested uh, in the background was uh, the, you know, the the custom in, in art for many over centuries, uh, which a lot of people find abhorrent now, where they would, you know, you'd go and you see Muhammad's fingernail or you would see somebody's little a bit of their hair or um, medieval times, you know, relics. Um, in fact, uh, where I live part of the year in Siena, there is the head, the actual head of St. Catherine of Siena. It's quite shrunken, but it's there. And I know some some Canadian visitors are utterly horrified at the idea of a head. But then you see, you did have the idea, the heart of a, a heart of a person was regarded as a very important organ, which of course indeed it is. So there was the idea that the heart's heart was taken out. And Daniel O'Connell, there's a precedent for this, that Daniel O'Connell, when he was coming back from visiting the Pope, he stopped in Genoa 
and I've been to the house where he, he stayed, and he died in Genoa. And his heart was taken, and it was he was regarded as such an important person, you know, the Catholic emancipator and so on. His heart was put inside a silver casket. And um, it now, I believe, I think the casket was stolen, but um, I believe that, uh, uh, I don't know where the heart is. The heart is supposed to be in the Irish College in Rome. I don't know. Anyway, so there is this idea of the organ being separated from its body, okay? Then there's the idea, of course, Brian, um, it was also the beginning, very much the beginning uh, of the, the event of technology uh, infiltrating all disciplines. And of course, um, it has become such a, 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 a pervasive thing now. But we're talking in the 60s. He was thinking about how um, there, a person might be sick in the intensive care unit and they're surrounded by machines clicking and beeping and squeaking. And somehow uh, what, what the doctor was reading on that was more important than the person in the bed, you know. So this was becoming, there was a shift from the human person uh, uh, to uh, this manifestation of their life, um, you know, life sources, etc. So all of that anyway was some of the idea. But the real reason, the real precipitating reason for his concept of um, making such a portrait was... The fact that Marcel Duchamp, of course, had said many had said many memorable things over his long career, but he was living in New York, and Brian knew him um, at this point, and in fact, he had interviewed him for one of his television programs. Brian had, and um, they got on well, and of course, they had chess in common as well. But um, he uh, invited; they were um, social terms with. Uh, Marcel Duchamp and his wife Teeny, and he they invited Brian and Barbara invited Teeny and uh, who was his wife um, and Marcel to dinner, and um, you probably heard Brian talk about this. And Barbara got out her um, cookbook and she made an extraordinarily uh, calorific uh, meal made with buckets of cream and butter and everything. And um, Brian jokingly says. Marcel must have just looked at it because he was a very slender guy, looked at it and thinks she's trying to kill me, you know, with all this cream and stuff. But Brian had this idea of making a portrait of uh, Duchamp in this manner because Duchamp famously said, um, you know, art dies once you put it on the museum wall, right? So Brian decided he very much admired Duchamp. Again, he really liked Duchamp's attitude. Um, you know, Duchamp was becoming part of the ether. Everybody knew. Uh, but at one point, it's worth saying, which I learned through Brian, Duchamp was not liked in, in New York because abstract expression, when abstract expressionism was in its heyday because they, they hated him. Um, and he, he had a tough enough time. But anyway, his star was rising at this stage and these younger generation of artists were becoming very interested in him. So Brian decided that he, much as he admired him, and he actually, in, in an article that he published uh, for Newsweek, I think it was, uh, Brian published an article, or he tried to publish it, uh, and the, uh, the editor rejected it, where he was saying that in his opinion, Marcel Duchamp, 
will be if Picasso is the 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 major artistic figure of the first part of the 20th century, Marcel Duchamp would be the major figure of the second and the editor wouldn't publish it. So it's now in some um, uh, Duchamp uh, archive somewhere. I've never seen it. Anyhow, so he decided he would refute Duchamp's dictum that if you put art on the wall, it dies because he was there was a lot of talk about museums becoming mausoleums and the art being taken out of its original context and and what that does to the piece of art and future generations won't know the original context which is which is true uh, anyhow there are arguments on both sides so he he got him to lie down on the bed and um take off his trousers and his socks and he put on these leads uh, which we use to take uh, electrocardiographic tracing and uh, there are four, he used four leads on his ankles and his arms. And then he hooked them up to the machine and he took his, uh, the tracing of his heartbeat. And that was over. Duchamp didn't ask any questions. That was his style. Very, very cool altogether. And uh, when he, he, but when he stood up, he said, well, doctor, how am I? And Brian said, well, I don't really know because I haven't looked at any of these things for such a long time, but it looks okay to me, you know, the the the, the wave, you know, the wave thing, pattern. So um, anyway, so then Marcel Duchamp said to him, oh, when you're signing that, would you sign it Brian O'Doherty M.D.? Because that's the way that you, you're you know, recognized as a doctor in America. But of course, Brian said, no, he wouldn't because... If MD was on it, he that in a way was Duchamp claiming some ownership of this particular piece of art, right? Now, Duchamp didn't know what he was going to do with it. Anyway, he made it into, it's a 16-part series. You only have uh, the print of the original uh, electrocardiographic tracing, but there are, there are drawings uh, which make up the 16-part series. And then he put, he etched the actual wave onto... Um, a, a spirit level, which had three little uh, little holes, and he then found a way of bouncing light. I don't quite understand bouncing light uh, that it would bounce along the wave. So when it's plugged into the wall, I've seen plugged into the wall, the light bounces along as if it's alive. All right, so it's the heart. The heart is alive. You know uh, that's the conceit, and of course. Uh, Duchamp died uh, two years later and um, he went and he looked at this on the wall and didn't say very much, but he must have understood this will be beating on the wall when after I'm dead. And that is, so in a way, Brian said it was, it was a tribute, but it wasn't a complete tribute. It was also a challenge. He had refuted Duchamp's dictum that, it, that art dies if it's put on the wall. That's, that was what was really behind it. So it's still alive and kicking, yeah, and it's still there. And, um, you know, so he had refuted the dictum. That was what's really behind it. Well, look, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, it's been a fascinating, uh, listen. it's been fascinating just listening to you talking about Brian's work. And um, I've, I mean, I've been aware of Brian O'Doherty for a long time since I was in, in college. And I mean, um, we as, as someone who's, been involved in the arts in Ireland we know that he's a pioneer conceptual artist critic and prose writer novelist and uh inside the white cube that you mentioned earlier is just I mean that really you know catapulted him into fame but also he's part of now the contemporary art discourse 
forevermore. Um, maybe just to, to finish up, um, I'd, I'd just like to uh, talk to you about Jack B. Yates again, uh, because we do have a drawing by Jack B. Yates that Brian O'Doherty did when he was a medical student. And, um, but also that letter that he wrote to Jack B. Yates includes uh, the line, uh, you know, where he's encouraging Jack to go back to painting. And he says, entertain the thought and reality will follow. I want to write that somewhere so I can see it every day. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think what he means by that is allow yourself to think that it's possible you can get back. And if you do, you know, trust yourself as an artist, it'll come. It it will become a reality. You know, I think that's, you know, uh, I don't quite know uh, how depressed maybe uh jack b yates was but certainly he had given up i don't think he ever did pick up a brush again um but here was brian trying to encourage him you know so i think that's what he meant you know if you allow yourself to entertain the thought it will it will happen you know but i don't think yates did yeah the other thing you said you have uh, a drawing of when he when he was a medical student now is that another one other than that uh, last portrait? Oh, I was I I thought he was a medical student at the time. I could be oh, wrong. No, 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 no. He was a fully qualified doctor because that that dates to 1957, and he qualified as a doctor in 1952. So he already was a doctor at that stage. Now I'm just wondering whether there was another one I didn't know about. Fifty-seven, no, um, and um, it was the, the same year Jack passed away himself. Yeah, he died three weeks later. Wow. Yeah, he, yeah. he died in March. Uh, Jack B. Yates died in March, and this was done on the 14th of February. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a very fine piece. Uh, I'm disappointed to see. I, I never see it hanging in, in, uh, in the National Gallery. It was hanging when you had the Yates room there, and you mm-hmm. used to have the, the very fine bust of Yates and then the drawing on the other side. Because actually, that drawing... Uh, was given as a gift by Brian in honour of uh, Dr. Hilary Pyle, who was the then Yates curator. Mm-hmm. So it is a gift to her in admiration of her work. Yeah, so if you, I don't know if you knew that. No, I must be mixing it up because I know he, he the, the artist as a nude was done when he was a student. So that's where I'm probably... That's where you're mixing it up. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But look, we, we've, um, we've discussed a lot there, I think. And... Um, so I'd like to thank you for joining me once again. And, uh, pleasure. Yeah, it's been fascinating. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Yvonne.